I've realized when it comes to this passage, there's just not enough time for me to say all the things I want to say. Um, and if I'm being honest, you know, just from a, a humanistic, uh, you know, from, from sin, from my own sin, when I first read it, I was a little bit um, disappointed in that I felt like we already went over some of these themes, right? And so I'm looking to find what I'm going to teach on, and there, it creates a challenge in that we've, we've covered a lot of these themes kind of repetitively. But I have to just continue. I've said this before, but I have to continue to rest in God's sovereign repetition. You know, he knows me much better than I know myself. And the, the reality of mankind is that we need reminding of our sinfulness. We need reminding of the situation that we're going to see here today, the history, our true history, our true stance in um, relationship to him. And so it's actually a, a really incredible um, verse. And my wife, who's um, a little bit more spiritually mature than I, when she read it, she's like, I'm so excited by this passage. <laughs> so you can see the difference of who's, you know, where they should be. Um, but in the retelling of the history of um, Israel, we get to glean a lot. And I'm hoping my front porch isn't uh, bigger than my house, but there's a lot to preface. Um, I was spending time, and I just want to reflect off of some, some of the things that I heard in our conversation. Um, but knowing that we read it together already, um, I was just thinking of, I'm spending time in Zechariah. And just from a historical perspective, hey, good to see you. Um, from a historical perspective, we know that, yes, they're exiled, but yet they return to the land. God returns them to the land by their enemies, by the Persians, right? As Babylon transitions to Persia's control and Zerubbabel's temple gets built and they're established in the land. Anyways, there's this principle in chapter one of Zechariah that says, uh, return to me and I'll return to you. And it's, it's uh, re- repeated and it's very important. And it sounds like looking back, it just sounds desirable now that we're, we're saved, we're in him. We know how great God is. We know the relationship with the Lord and, and how it, we, it's, it's unexpressible, inexpressible. We would want that more than anything else. And so when we see people, the history of mankind, when we see the history of Israel and God is, as it says here, continuing to give them benevolent grace and then ask them to choose him, but instead they're choosing a yoke of this world. They're, they're putting off the light yoke and they're choosing a heavy yoke, uh, um, uh, enslavement to, to sin, enslavement to, um, to these very strict rules and, and rules that are evil, uh, rules that are bad, as we see in 25 and 26. It's just puzzling because it's like you just want to scream to them, like, just trust the Lord, right? Take the Lord and, and um, he'll deliver you. But instead, they want to rely on themselves. They want to rely on Egypt and they're getting conquered. They're getting um, enslaved. They're getting put into exile again and, and again um, and still hardly learning. And so this is the history and this is the passage for today. But if we want to understand the application, right? So when we're looking at exposition, what, what is exposition? I think we all love it. That's kind of what brings us into this room and what brought us into a fellowship with Brad and, and the love of his teaching. It's called exegetical explorations, I think is what he titled the class uh, from a, uh, a fundamental undergirding. And the idea is that we, I think, are hungry for the word, you know, church is wonderful. We want church. We want even more of that. It's like, I'm hungry, pastor, give me the word. Um, and that's a famous quote. But we, as we want 
the word, what does that look like? What is expositional preaching? What's the purpose? How should that look? And how should we break down scripture even on our own? And the idea is exegetical and, and um, expositional preaching is really just understanding, uh, saying the word, preaching the word, right? Reading the word, explaining what it means, and then applying it. But what does that mean, applying it? So oftentimes in our culture, we think about application as very pragmatic and practical, overly practical. Like, what's in it for me? I think so many people come to church and it's like, yeah, yeah, this is great, but how is this going to help me with my taxes? <laughs> it's like, this wasn't written for our taxes. Um, how is this going to help me succeed? How is this going to help me with my investments? You know, how can I uh, master all the relationships in my life to my benefit? And, and honestly, that's not, that's fundamentally misguided in what scripture is for, why it's delivered to us, what the correct perspective is, the context. So I'm not saying that this isn't applicable to our life. It certainly is. All scripture is applicable. What's the right application? The right application is letting scripture wash over us and understanding what God has given us, what God has for us. So living a a life unto God and glorifying him. So I really think that today's thrust of the message could be um, related again to the Westminster Confession and the chief end of man, which is uh, the ultimate glory of God. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more as, as we continue on. But I'm going to read the word now. So chapter 20, verses 1 through 26 of Ezekiel. Now it happened in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, that some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of Yahweh and sat before me. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares Lord Yahweh, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers. And say to them, thus says Lord Yahweh, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am Yahweh your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of their eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. Each one did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath on them, to spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made them know my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. And I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. In my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to completely destroy them. But I acted for the sake of my name, 
that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Because they rejected my judgments, as for my statutes, they did not walk in them, they profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually walked after their idols. Yet my eye had pity on them rather than bringing them to ruin, and I did not make of them a complete destruction in the wilderness. I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, and do not keep their judgments, and do not defile yourselves with their idols. I am Yahweh your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Keep my Sabbaths holy, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am Yahweh your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to do my judgments, which, if a man does them, he will live by them. They profaned my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them to spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I turned back my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands. Because they had not done my judgments, but had rejected my statutes and had profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were going after the idols of their fathers. And I also gave them statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts, in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire, so that I might make them desolate, in order that they might know that I am Yahweh. Yes. Yeah, this is a pessimistic, contextual, theological, revisionist history of what happened. And that's what that's what's here. I know that I put a lot of words here together. But it's a retelling of the appropriate theological and doctrinal issues. Um so we see a lot here. We see what's true of man, we see what's true of God. We see what's true of the history of Israel. I think we get a lot of the question of why answered. I was touching on that a moment ago, but why is this important? Why did God choose Israel? We don't get an answer for that directly, but we understand why God chose Israel, at least holistically from a doctrinal standpoint. Um, Why he dealt with Israel and the way that he deals with them. And a lot of Ezekiel is considered theodicy. Right, Ezekiel is known as a theodicy. As a theodicy is basically defining or explaining um, how God deals with people um, from a perspective of sin. So, why does sin exist, for example? And so, it's an explanation of of how God utilizes um, everything in this world to His glory, and uh, why He allows sin to exist. Why He allows Uh, these challenges to happen. So we also see, like I was talking about earlier, this repetitive theology, um, this repetitive sovereignty in in that we're seeing repeating themes. And unlike the New Testament, which is primarily um, logical um, in in the unveiling of, of ideas and thoughts, and it's progressive, the Old Testament is consistent with hammering home these truths that, that are so vital to us and so important. But yet it was hammered to them so much they just didn't see it. 
They still couldn't see it. So that's where we find ourselves here. So the, the leaders, the exilic leaders of Israel, are coming again and asking for a counsel of the Lord. They're asking for, our, for an oracle from the Lord. And so just remembering that Ezekiel is not sequential. So this is actually um, 11 months after the temple oracles and prophecy uh, that happened in chapter 8. So I think it's just about two years into his ministry. So it's pretty early. It's before the fall of Jerusalem. Come on in. Oh, okay. Let me know if you need anything. Yeah, probably. Everything okay out there? Okay. Oh, thanks. Autumn's being a troublemaker. <laughs> it could be worse, so good, good things. Okay, um, so the reality of the situation is that I think Kathleen brought this up uh, really well. They still don't get it, right? The exilic uh, community, they, they still don't get it. This is still pretty early on, but they're not understanding um, that they're going to have judgment, even though it's been told to them. They're going to have judgment, and they deserve judgment. And so they ask a question of uh, Ezekiel. Now, it's, it's not mentioned what's asked, but it's obvious from the context and the historical context. I think this is why we see the date um, listed here. So going on at the same time, there was success from the king of Egypt in the area of Palestine. Okay? Um, and additionally, there was a, uh, a false prophecy for uh, the king at the time of Israel. And so they thought that potentially they were going to find their, um, their salvation in Egypt. Remember, we, we learned from this before, Zedekiah foolishly trusted in Egypt um, and relied on them as, as, as savior instead of the savior, instead of God. Um, and that was looked at as political idolatry. And so here, um, they're coming to ask that question. You know, might we find escape from exile through Egypt? They're having some success here. It's really starting to look good. Now, of course, we understand from a historical perspective that uh, that wasn't the case, that, that Israel wasn't uh, their salvation and that they were certainly brought into exile. And so the Lord does not answer them according to their question. In fact, he's, he's um, sternly uh, against answering these idolaters who are burning their children according to their folly. So he doesn't want to cast pearls before swine in answering them, but he gives he uses this as a teaching moment. He does end up utilizing this for an answer, just not answering them according to the request. And we see evidence of that again in verse 32, as he reminds them he's not going to answer them for what reason, and he reminds them that, or he speaks to the nature of their hearts and that they want to be like other nations. They want to worship idols. They want to worship things of wood and stone. I know I'm jumping ahead, so we're going to get there next time. Oh, you did. <laughs> you did. You would. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, there's some answers there, and maybe I should have done the whole chapter, but I, I don't think I would have gotten away with it with you all. Um, and the king that I was mentioning was Semeticus II. He became sick, and, and Egypt never uh, quite became the strength that they thought it would be. And so, of course, this is after the first... Um, Babylonian conquest, so they're in exile, but again, not, not yet there. So again, thus says the Lord Yahweh, 
Do you come to inquire of me as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh? I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers. And the language here, abominations, it's a cultic word describing like witchcraft and language of fathers actually describes nations. So right from the outset, he's describing them again as the nation of uh, the Canaanite nations. He's combining them with that uh, type of um, judgment. And say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, on the day when I choose Israel, when I chose Israel, so automatically we see the sovereignty of the Lord. We can't dodge that. This isn't something that's a New Testament ideology that's taken out of context. Sovereignty of the Lord is front and center, according to Lawson. It's chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, Paul, for example, when he deals so often with salvation, it's chapter 1, verse 1, and he's describing the sovereignty and salvation. So... Why did he choose Israel? Was it because of how great they were? We get to see, yeah, certainly not. Yeah, the very opposite. God chose Israel because he chose Israel. So we don't know, of course, the mysteries of the Lord and why he does what he does, but we just know that it's his sovereign choice, and it's certainly not of anything that we can boast in. Um, I'm specifically, of course, making this equation from a national standpoint, but we see this example in the nation. He chose Israel, but they were not worthy of choosing, not in their own right. And swore to the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt when I swore to them, saying, I am Yahweh your God. As I continue, we're going to see three generational examples. As he tells the history of Israel, he uses three generations. And it follows a similar pattern. This is really a parody, by the way, in genre. But the pattern is God's benevolence, right? God's gracious, giving benevolence. Man's immediate rebellion, Israel's rebellion, followed by God's judgment and his grace and mercy. So four steps there. We see that in each and every one, but the second and third are repeated twice. So God's great to them. God chose them as a nation. He made them unique and special among other nations. He made them the envy of other nations. He promised them the land. He swore to them. And he made sure that they knew that he was their God, which is a repeating theme through Ezekiel, that they'll know that he is God. I hope I don't say this later again, but this is the purpose of Israel, is to be a demonstration to other nations that Yahweh is God. They're to be a light to God. And they failed in this, of course. But this is a mandate for us as well. On that day, I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Going back to uh, the example I was giving from Zechariah, I mean, how beautiful is that? God chose them. He's the only God. He is God. He's giving them special relationship, and he's giving them the, the promised land, the glory of all lands. Why wouldn't they want to take that offer? So he gives them a, a pretty simple command. I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of their eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. So that's a clue there. They're already with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. Each one did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake their idols of Egypt. So in the retelling of Israel's story, it begins in Egypt. Of course, we understand Abraham, the the sons of Jacob. We we understand where Israel came from. But this is speaking of the precipice of the nation. And at the first day that God makes known to them that he is God, they sin. 
the first day. So this isn't uh, later on at, at Mara, the bitter water. This isn't later on uh, a rebellion of the golden calf. This is an immediate rebellion, instantaneous. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath on them to spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Naturally, this would be just of God. But I acted by the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. When we get this premise, why Israel? To be the light of nations, to be the light to Yahweh, to let them know that Yahweh is the Lord, that God is Yahweh. So he acted for the sake of his name. So this is the, uh, we heard the judgment, and now this is the grace, the mercy. But it's not mercy that they've earned. It's not similar to the pattern of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's told this pattern of uh, God's grace, rebellion, and then repentance, right? Especially when we're um, giving edicts of hope towards, hey, you need to uh, inherit the land. and This is what you need to do. So uh, I'm sure the exilic community would have considered, they knew that they sinned. They knew that they had a, a lot of shame in their, in their past for their fathers, and we've covered a lot of that. But they still would have felt probably pretty good about their history. They felt pretty special. And so they would have felt, um, I think, pretty shocked by this portrayal of understanding of the reality of, of their nature. And so this is the repetitive nature of man, this repetitive fall from the beginning and consistently. And so we see, obviously, in um, Israel, this example told us so many times, we see this in unbelievers, right? They cannot do good. No one is good, not one. And so we see the reality in that God has chosen man, the ones that he chose, of course, he makes to be different. But man on their own are depraved. That's the reality of this. They're, they're totally, there's nothing good of these uh, Israelites, as we've discussed, just like there's nothing good of us. So even as Christians, even with the paraclete, even with the helper, even with redemption, even with all of the, the prophets, the oracles, the truths, um, the apostles, we, we still have sins in our life. Now, we don't practice sin, surely, as we know in First John. That would mean that we weren't believers if we made practice of sin. But we'll have sin in our life. We can't not sin. If anyone said that they didn't have sin, that they are calling God a liar. And so I know I've repeated that a lot recently. But this is the reality of the depravity of man. We can see it even in our own lives, that even with the Lord, we still are not good. Right? And all of our goodness is God. Our goodness is on our own, just dirty racks. So any of our goodness is the Lord. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. So why did he relent in not destroying them for the sake of his name? And so the understanding here is he set them to be a light. He made the nations to know that this is my people. And they understood, based on cultural traditions, if they conquered a nation, they thought that they conquered that God. And their God was better than that God. If there was a calamity and a natural disaster, they thought that that God failed them or was weak and they would look for a better God. So this is a description of the one true and only almighty God in that he's perfect. And he, through his character, though he will deal with them in judgment, he's making it known who he is. So that's all of the redemptive history is God revealing his character to us. 
That's the reason of Israel. That's the reason of us. That's the reason of, of a lot of the occurrences and the events is to demonstrate his glory. So the reason of sin, well, we understand now a better example of who God is because sin exists. We understand the bad morals of people in contrast with the good moral of God, the good truth of God. And so the world wouldn't uh, have known God's glory the same if sin didn't exist, for example, and his plan is perfect. And so he goes to redeem his name, to continue his name. He doesn't decimate them. He gives them mercy. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. So that's the end of the first generation. They were in Egypt, remember, 430 years about in in exile. And this is probably why. It's why were they in exile so long? It seems pretty harsh for a nation that God just uh, made unto themselves, himself. But it was their idolatry. So that cue earlier. They were in idolatry. He warned them about idolatry. And then on that first day he chose them, they remained in idolatry. They didn't put it off. And so even though it seems harsh, it's this gracious love that God gave them through the years and through all the exiles. We see specifically in Ezekiel as it's described as this gracious blessing that he conquered them and took them into Babylon to choose for himself them and to sanctify them and to give them the eternal promise. But we see even here him purifying what worship is to himself, purifying true worship and in his jealousy, making a people unto himself and being patient to not destroy them, but steadfast love them and and remove that of them through that time. I gave them my statutes and made them know my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. So this is the way of life we've talked about several times over. It's not um, eternal life. If they were to live righteously according to Leviticus, they would have life. They would have inherited the land according to that promise, but they wouldn't have had eternal life. However, if we understand this more fully, if they were to have followed in obedience, this is not works-based righteousness. This is not them doing good works and living righteously so that they live by their own goodness. This is only from a contextual understanding that they're sinful. But if they were to be doing God's will, that would have demonstrated that they truly had faith in God. So to follow God, to do his will, is to demonstrate that we believe in him. We have faith in him to truly do that. So that's what we learn in James, right? Um, faith without works is dead. So we believe, even though we believe in salvation by faith alone, we know that that's the truth of scripture. We don't believe in salvation by faith that is alone. So true faith will obey the Lord. And so that's how they would have demonstrated that they did believe in faith, the righteousness of faith and a following of faith that they would obey him. But they didn't. And I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to completely destroy them. I'm going to be talking pretty quickly here because I see I'm pretty late on time, and I don't want us to miss the second sermon. But there is so much to describe here in Sabbath. It's Sabbaths, so it's talking about this, uh, the Sabbath um, principles there. So there's you know, the Sabbath of the week. Um, there's the Sabbath of uh, the year, for example, the year of Jubilee. And so 
what does the Sabbath do? It demonstrates that he's creator. It demonstrates that he has a special relationship with them, and it sanctifies them. And it's, again, said sanctifying, so it separates them. So they are to be set apart from the world. They're to be sanctified. And in that way, this is an understanding of the entirety of the passage in his purpose for them. Then I would pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to completely destroy them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Again, he's acting in the sake of his name. And it's described here what, what that means, right? It's before whose sight I had brought them out. He's protecting his name and that he's not making a complete end of them but having patience in his, his sovereign plan. So the first wilderness... Um, generation. They won't inherit the land as a judgment. And then in the, uh, the the second generation in the wilderness, in the desert, they will inherit the land. But specifically in language here, we see the judgment that he has already committed to them in their um, original sin and in their lack of keeping his Sabbaths and, and just their utter depravity. He's not. Go- he's going to send them into dispersion. I am Yahweh, your God, again. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments. And so again, in the same pattern, the third generation did not follow him and were judged. Their children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to do my judgments, which I skipped ahead here. I'm on verse 21. If a man does them, he will live by them. They profane my Sabbaths. So why would you profane the Sabbath? I was, we were talking about at the table. If there was any principle you'd want to keep, it would be rest. The principle of rest and the principle of resting in the Lord and being set apart from the world. But it's their nature of of depravity. They want to be like the world. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them to spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I turned back my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that I should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whom sight I had brought them out. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands. That's what I was looking for. No, this is um, this is in this uh, passage. It goes ancient history and then recent history. So in the next portion, that's why I broke it up in this way. After verse twenty six, we're going to see through uh, the thirties, the early thirties. You're going to see a um, an example of their uh, recent history, which is similar in rebellion, their recent rebellion. So this is the um, the second generation in the desert, in the wilderness that he's dealing with. Okay, but this is just describing who they are historically. This is their past. This is who they are. And so there's a challenge here in 25 and 26. And I also gave them statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts and that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am the Lord. So the gifts are uh, their sacrifices uh, demanded of by their idols. And so uh, there's two different ways to look at this, both of them very true. So when God lets them over to, they don't want to follow God's commandments. They don't want to follow God's Sabbath. They don't want to be special. And they want to be like the other nations and serve idols. And so he allows them to go over and serve other idols. But the the practice of following other gods might not come with God's commandments, but they're not free by any means. Sin brings death. 
So naturally, we see death coming from their practice. But the demands of these false practices of idolatry are heavy. It's heavy tradition. It's heavy law, law that's uh, unpassable, unfollowable. It's think of Catholicism that drove uh, Martin Luther to his breaking point, right? That just extreme uh, rigorous rule that breaks us. Think of Judaism and all the laws that they added. No man can keep them. But additionally... They're not good. As earlier in verse 11, it describes his good commandments that he gave them. It's contrasted here versus these bad commandments, uh, these bad rules. He, he did not give them specifically. They're not his rule. His rule, of course, is good. But it's the, the practice of the world, which was what? What were these idols demanding of them but child sacrifice? So the, the smell of the food would go up at these idols' nose. That was the demand. So they would devour the children. And that's the ultimate judgment and conclusion of their situation. It couldn't be summarized better than the reality that their depravity has gone so far that God has given them to these idols and they're giving, the firstborn is giving their firstborn to false gods. So the, the principle here in summary is twofold. We understand from a Sabbath principle, God's setting them apart to be unique and God preserving his name that the purpose of Israel's story is for his glory, his glory alone, his name. He caused them to be a people. He made them unique. He gave them special commands and special rest and a special land, but they failed in their covenant. They rebelled immediately. And so God dealing righteously with his name, he steadfastly keeps his promises. He keeps his word And he keeps his people that he's going to purpose for his glory. He's going to have a people unto himself that's unique to him and clean and clear. And we're going to see the purity that's happening, the purification in in the second portion of Ezekiel chapter 20. But I want to provide some more um, verses here to build up this true point. Romans 11.36 says, For everything comes from God alone. Everything lives by his power. And everything is for his glory. To him be glory evermore. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this is our application. Being that we know that everything comes from God, from Romans 11. Everything is for his glory. What are we then to do? But to do everything to his glory. Again, to Westminster Confessions, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To both glorify God and and to joy in that. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, if you want to find that. It says, The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 
I want to also find Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so we see here in the image that we have of Jesus in the fulfillment of who he is as God, we see his emptying of his own will to the fathers in Philippians. We see him going and being um, subject to the father's will, even to death on the cross. And we see the best example as we are to live to Christ's example in doing all things for the glory of God. And I'll summarize with one more Philippians two, who, although existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory, the glory of God, the father. And that's where we'll end to the glory of God, the father. So this week, if we could pause to adore God and his glory and remember and ask ourselves that question, are we living to the glory of God? Are we doing all we can to the glory of God? So let's pray again. Thanks for the extended time today. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word and thank you for your glorious name, your splendor, your radiance, your weightiness. Doxa, your value, Lord, is is great. Uh, Thank you for demonstrating that in your son, for choosing us, for causing a nation to be your own, and giving us even those examples, Lord, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.